Good morning. We are in week four of the coronavirus and doing church online. And uh, so much has happened during that time for all of us, and yet so little has happened too, right? We've been in our homes a lot more. We get to play more board games. We're baking all kinds of stuff that maybe we wouldn't normally bake, or at least that's what I'm doing. I think I've tried five new recipes of baking. I won't, I won't bore you with the details right now. But through this time, I've just been so encouraged and optimistic about how our church is responding to everything that has happened. By this time, we've almost called everybody in our church. I'm sure a few people have slipped through the cracks, and we're trying to go over our list and make sure we cover everybody, but always you can reach out to us. Uh, and the vast majority of people I talk to have said, yeah, this is kind of scary, but our strength and our hope and our trust is in God. And I've been so encouraged by the response of our congregation as it pertains to joining us online, responding and interacting with us, giving to the church and giving to people in need. Uh, the giving has been great. Uh, did you know last week alone we took in over $5,000 to our benevolence fund, which will go to help people who have struggles? And listen, if you're in a situation where you're uncertain with work and you're not able to work, this is not a time that you can really give to church in the same way, you know? We give to God out of what he's given to us. And if you're going through a time of struggle, the church doesn't exist to just take and receive. It exists to give back to people. And we want to make sure that we're on the forefront of that. That's a huge part of why we're calling everybody to assess where the needs are and to be able to help the people who, who are struggling. And so uh, this week we, we took in 5,000. We're going to disperse some of that money right away this week. As we've been talking to people, we have a good idea of where some of the greatest needs are. And if you are a person in our church family who are struggling and who has needs, uh, we want you to reach out to us so we can help you. Man, our governments have done so much to try to, to meet the demands of this unprecedented thing uh, that we're going through, this unprecedented time. And you're not going to get evicted and you're not going to... Um, you're not going to uh, have your house foreclosed on. Your utilities aren't going to be turned off. Your internet won't be turned off. Our government has made so much happen as far as what they've mandated people can't do. But you still need money to eat. And, and we want to make sure that as a church family, we're helping each other and we're taking care of each other. And so if you have needs, please do not hesitate to reach out. And if you are still in a position to help, please give to our Good Samaritan Fund so we can continue to help people who are, are not able to work. Um, as this thing progresses, more and more people are going to be affected and are going to have a hard time with some of those basic necessities. And as a church family, we want to make sure that we share in the spirit of Acts 2 so that everybody has their needs met. Uh, I want to make your, bring your attention, before I get into our sermon this morning, of two things that we've got going extra this coming week. Uh, this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, we'll have our second online prayer meeting that I'll be leading. And I've done some research, and I'm going to make sure that my video this week is not sideways. I've done a lot of research. The sad part is, it took me about an hour of talking with Chris to get to the point where I could stream it sideways. So now, with an additional hour of time invested, I've, re I've discovered where my problem was, and now this week, I will be able to, uh, you know, to stream it with my face like this, you know, uh, the right way up. When, when the Wednesday prayer meeting was going, I was, the whole time, my wife came in and says, Bill, you're sideways, and I just thought she was telling me I was in portrait instead of landscape, and I thought, that's a bummer. I wanted to be landscape, but I guess I'm portrait, but oh no. I was completely 90 degrees sideways. So anyway, I've got that fixed. But every single week, I want to join together in prayer. And uh, 
when we join together on Wednesday evenings at 7, what we're going to do is we're going to have a, a short devotional. This week's was a little longer. I'm sure this week's will be 20, 25 minutes as well because I already had started to develop messages that I had to adjust. And so, I, you know, I developed them. I created them. I wanted to get them out there. But um, in the next Wednesdays to follow, we're going to continue meeting for prayer. And we're going to continue in that format where there's a devotion and things that I want you to keep your focus on scripturally and as we uh, go through this time together. And I'm hoping through those Wednesdays that I can provide additional content to provide um, unity to our congregation, especially when we come back together about the things that are most important. And of course, we're going to pray and we're going to follow the theme. I'm going to have a prayer each week um, that somebody else has written. I'm going to have a prayer that we pray through scripture and I'm going to pray for us in a general way. If you have any prayer requests that you would like to be prayed for specifically during that time, and you're okay with their being pub them being public, you can always put comments to the announcement on Facebook that we have a prayer meeting this week. You can email me directly at bill at lifespringcc.com. Uh, and if you have prayer requests that you would like the office to pray for, the staff and the elders to pray for, but you would not like to be public, you can always email those to me, and I will not make them public, of course. And last, we have our Good Friday service. Even though it will be online, we are still having a Good Friday service. This is such an important week in the church year. Uh, and so this Friday, we'll be joined together at 7 o'clock online to celebrate the, the cross uh, the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus, and we're going to see the symbolism of the cross and all of its beauty and all of its ugliness, and all of its beauty and all of its ugliness. But before the cross ever happens in the life of Jesus, there is this massive important event that takes place, and it takes place on the day that we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday. It is a day when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem for the last time before his crucifixion. It is a day in which there is massive expectation that has been placed on Jesus. An expectation that Jesus has no intention of meeting. The people have been whipped up into a fervor. The last event that Jesus has done that has been on the public scene is Jesus has just gone to his close friend's house, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. But the event that is sad is because Lazarus has just died. And Jesus goes to their house four days after he has died, Lazarus. His, the tomb has been sealed, and Jesus has the tomb rolled away, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. After spending a little bit of time in Bethany with Mary and Martha, and now the now resurrected Lazarus, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. But in the meantime, Bethany is not far from Jerusalem. The word has spread that a man who was dead is now alive. And so all these people have come out to the house of Lazarus in Bethany. And they have seen Lazarus. And they're like, oh my goodness, Lazarus was dead. Now he's alive. And they've seen him. They've touched him. They've talked with him. They know that Jesus has done something miraculous. And so the aura of miraculous is... Uh, is just beaming around Jesus or whatever that word should be, you know? And there is so much expectation of who Jesus is and what he is going to do. In fact, just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the gospel writers let us into a secret conversation that they have behind closed doors. 
where John tells us that the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, they have a closed door meeting where they say to each other, if we do not take care of Jesus and he continues to do these things, you know, the miraculous, everybody is going to believe in him and we are going to be in trouble. Our power will be taken away because the Romans are going to come and they're going to wipe us out. Wipe us out. And so the religious leaders behind closed doors before Jesus ever arrives say something has to be done. And now Jesus leaves the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. He makes his way to Jerusalem. And when he does, here is what greets him. It's found in John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. And we're going to be there for a little bit. And so I want to encourage you, even in your homes, if you have your Bible in front of you, to turn there. John chapter 12, verses 9 through 9, or 12 through 19. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Here's what the text says. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And so they took palm branches. They went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And so Jesus found a donkey and he sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming. He is seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they did realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, raised from the dead, continued to spread the word. But many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the entire world has gone after him. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This text tells us something about expectations and reality. This tells us something about what we expect and the, what happens. And when those things do not collide, it tells us something about ourselves. Expectations and reality. What do we do when our expectations of what should be do not match with reality? Now, I want to take that question to a higher plane. What do we do when our expectations of God do not match the reality of our circumstances and our situation? Here, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and everything about the expectations that is being placed on Jesus by the crowd is shouting that they want someone to be a military deliverer who will deliver them from the oppression of Rome. Everything about it is about triumph, victory, and military conquest. And what is a military conquest all about? It's kind of like uh, sports, but with more at stake, right? There is a winner and there is a loser. And the Jews are celebrating Jesus because they feel like they have the ace in the coal, you know? They feel like they have the all-star stud who is going to guarantee them victory. But in the guarantee of victory, do you not see that what the Jews are expecting is that they will be victorious and someone else will be the loser? They will be victorious and someone else will be the loser. 
Everything about the symbolism of this passage is about this. First, they start to wave the palm branches and they put them at the feet of Jesus. Palm branches were this major symbol going back a couple, uh, uh, going back to the Psalms and going back just 100, 150 years earlier when the Maccabean uh, Revolution took place. And I'm not going to give you much history, but in two separate occasions after the Israelites under the leadership of the Maccabees had uh, defeated the Gentile uh, oppressors, the Greeks and the Syrians and the Seleucids, They went into the temple the first time and they rededicated their temple with palm branches. And another instance, after they had defeated uh, uh, the Gentiles at a battle, they waved the palm branches and they celebrated in the streets. And now here is Jesus coming into the city with these palm branches being waved. The symbolism here is Jesus is about to destroy the Gentiles. And they are celebrating before the victory even happens. You know, it's kind of like LeBron James in the decision. Not one, not two, not three. <laughs> you know, I'm going to win all kinds of championships, right? But here, it's not LeBron James, the all-star celebrating and proclaiming that we are going to win before they even won. Here, it is the crowds saying, now we've got Jesus and we are going to win the championship, Right? But the text goes on. The crowds begin to celebrate and they shout out, right? And even their shouts tell us of their expectations. They first shout out, Hosanna. Hosanna. It's a liturgical phrase, but what does the liturgical phrase mean? It means, Lord, save us now. Save us now. This is all. And if you look up in the Old Testament, the times that Hosanna is used, and this would be fun word studies type stuff for you guys at home. I'm sure you want to do this with your extra time. Uh, it bake, it, it, it's a lot less risky than, than baking a ton of cinnamon buns. You know what I mean? You can't gain weight off doing biblical word studies. Yes. Anyway, if you were to do the word study with Hosanna, you would see that it is a liturgical phrase used predominantly in the Psalms or during times of celebration in the Old Testament after victory or while anticipating, anticipating victory. Save us now. Victory. We will have it and we will have it by stomping on the losers. Yes? The next phrase in verse, uh, verse 13, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It comes from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. And if you were were to read Psalm 118, you would see it is all about victory over your enemies, those who oppress you. And lastly, blessed is the king of Israel. I mean, here they just come out and write, say it. There's um, There's no symbolism to look under. You are our king. And what is the king supposed to do? The king is the one that rides the big white horse that holds the massive sword in his hand that leads his people to victory, right? Leads his people to victory. The crowd is cheering a fantasy, their messianic hero that they expect will bring the Jewish nation victory and will defeat all of their enemies by destroying them. By destroying them. And yet, what does Jesus do in this passage? He does not mount a beautiful, large horse, but he gets on a donkey. 
I imagine that with all the symbolism, I mean, Jesus knows everything, but even if he didn't, he would be able to read between the lines of this symbolism. Every single person in the crowd knew what they were cheering for, what they were expecting, and yet Jesus gets on a donkey, right? Not a horse, but a donkey. Even this act of getting on a donkey is loaded with meaning. Uh, As the crowds expect and cheer a victory that has not happened yet, but they believe is certain, the defeat of their enemies, Jesus mounts a donkey as a humble servant. Jesus, mentally at this point, must have been sad as he mounts the donkey and he sees the people and he realizes their expectations and he realizes not a sadness on the basis that he will disappoint them, but a sadness that their expectations are so perverted in light of God's overwhelming plan, right? And Jesus mounts a donkey. The expectation is for a military deliverer and the reality is what? A gentle peace bringer. A gentle peace bringer. The crowds expect a military deliverer. Jesus mounts the donkey and he's saying, I'm not a military deliverer. I'm a gentle peace bringer. Now you might think I am reading in between the lines an awful lot by this whole donkey versus horse thing going on, right? And so I want to take you to the passage where I get why Jesus is a gentle peace bringer. It's actually a passage that Casey read in our worship service just a few moments ago. It starts in Zechariah chapter 9, and it goes through verses 9 through 11. And she just read the first part, verse 9. And I want you to turn there. You can keep your your thumb or finger in John chapter 12. And I want you to turn back to Zechariah chapter 9. It's just a few books before this one. It's in the Old Testament. But if you were to go backwards, it would be John, Luke, Mark, Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah. So it will not be hard to find. Just turn back a few books. Right before, after Matthew is Malachi. Right before Malachi is Zechariah. I'm going to give you a second to turn there because having your eyeballs on this verse is very important. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. And you'll see that in John chapter 12, Jesus, or the... Jesus is sitting on the donkey, and John, the gospel writer, tells us, he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, but he changes the verse just slightly, and the change is important. Here it says, in Zechariah chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now notice what this deliverer does. This gentle, righteous, victorious, lowly deliverer does who's riding on the donkey. Verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle will be broken, right? Jesus, the one who comes on the donkey, the one who Zechariah chapter 9 is proclaiming, is a deliverer who is associated with the cessation of war, the ending of military conflict. I will take away Ephraim's chariots, the war horses horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. There will be no need for military instruments, for chariots, for war horses, and battle bows. I will take them away, 
and I will proclaim peace to the nations, a peace that will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This deliverer is associated not with the stomping of his foot under his enemies, but with peace between people who were once at conflict. And lastly, through the blood of my covenant, verse 11, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. The king is associated with the freeing of prisoners who are, who are captive by a new type of way, a new covenant. Now notice in Zechariah chapter 9 that the verses begin, rejoice. But notice how in John chapter 12, the quotation of Zechariah 9 does not say rejoice. It says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why is this? I have a theory. I can't be sure my theory is right, but of course I think it is or I would change my mind. Yes? I have a theory. And here's how my theory works. Why does the gospel writer change Zechariah chapter 9 from rejoice at the coming of Messiah, who will be lowly, victorious, and righteous, who will take away war, who will proclaim peace, and who will set prisoners free, to do not be afraid, daughter Jerusalem. Why is the change? Why does John do this? When I was in high school, I was, I think, 10th grade, and I was in this class. It was a computer class, you know. I, it didn't actually teach me a lot except typing. I'm a very good typer, actually. But I didn't learn a lot about how to do computers. We already went over that with the whole Facebook Live video thing, right? Anyway, I was in this computer class, and I was an underclassman. I wasn't the height of popular in high school, you know? I know that's hard to believe. Anyway, uh, and I sat by this kid. His name was Matt, and he was an upperclassman. An upperclassman never talked to me, but he was an upperclassman. He was super nice to me, and one day, he found out I was a Christian, and then he just treated me like garbage, and he bullied me all the time, right? Um... I tried to avoid him, but he bullied me. I would wear shirts. I had that little tag on the back. He would call it an offensive name, and he would try to rip it off my shirt. It was all, it, it, it was horrible, you know? Now, if I had prayed to God and said, deliver me from this, what I would want is for God to get rid of this guy, Matt. I can't remember his last name, which is good for him, you know? I can't, I would want God to just wipe him out, Right? Make him a smear on the pavement. Then I won't have to deal with Matt because Matt will be gone, right? But John changes it. Do not be afraid. Not rejoice. Do not be afraid. Now, here's what I think is going on. Here's what I think. If the people that you were afraid of, you have been given victory over the people you've been afraid of, you're assuming that they're now in jail or they're just gone, Right? But what if you are told that you've been given victory over the people who used to oppress you and then you go back to computer class and there he is right sitting by you and you are told, oh, I've made peace between you, right? You're looking right at him. Do not be afraid. My theory on why John says do not be afraid is because Jesus' plan for bringing victory was never to wipe off the face of the earth, the enemy, but was to make peace with the enemy, through his blood, therefore casting down the wall of division and hostility that existed between us. This I know I'm not wrong because I'm actually quoting from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, which tells us that's exactly what Jesus' death has done. 
it didn't wipe out the people on the other side of the wall. It took down the wall and made peace between them. Peace between them. Why were the crowds, in just a few short days, disappointed by Jesus and clamoring for his death? Because they were expecting a human hero who would save them from the Gentiles and their oppressors, and what they got instead was God in human form who loved everyone, who loved everyone. Sometimes it occurs to me that with our friendships, that love is sometimes this exclusive thing, you know, like I've got a close friend or, you know, and then I've got somebody else. And what do I do? I expect my close friend uh, to support me and not like the other person who's my enemy, right? But if my close friend feels like they are trying to reconcile me with my enemy, I might take that as a betrayal. Does this make sense? And so I think at times we as Christians think, you know, um, God is for us and he's against everybody else. We can, we can fall into these rhythms of thinking, right? Especially if we allow separatist thinking, you know, onward Christian soldier thinking to, to, to impermeate our hearts and minds where we think we are on the Lord's side and this people are not on the Lord's side and he will give us battle by keeping us pure and unpolluted from this side and ultimately defeating them, right? But to see <laughs> to see life this way is to miss everything that Palm Sunday is about, everything that is about the heart of Jesus, everything that the cross is about in the resurrection, is that Jesus has hoped to bring victory, not through defeating and destroying, but through loving, conquering, and showing people a different way. They were expecting a human hero who would save them by destroying, and what they got is a savior who died for all, who will die for all and love everyone equally. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? The Lord is not slow concerning his promise of coming again, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Disappointed expectations. I want you to wipe them out. And Jesus says, I love them all. What if LeBron James celebrated by the people and he, he wasn't the one saying, I'm going to bring championships. And what if the people said, he's going to bring us not one, not two, not three. He's going to bring us four plus championships. And what if LeBron then says, you know, my greatness is not that I can bring you championships, but that I can make us all winners. Yes? <laughs> I bet you Miami, the city of Miami, would have turned against LeBron real quick. It's not even the way sports is meant to function, you see? God, Jesus, turns everything on its heads. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear the one who's not like you. Do not fear the enemy. Uh, you, you think who, the person you think is your enemy. For God loves everyone. And when the crowds and the religious leaders and when the disciples when they started to realize that their expectations were not going to be met, 
They all responded in different ways, didn't they? All of it was fear, though. When the Pharisees realized that Jesus, this new incredible rabbi, had come onto the scene who's proclaiming to be God, they began to become afraid of him, and so they decided that they wanted to wipe him off the face of the earth in vindictive jealousy. When the crowds realized that Jesus wasn't who they thought he would be when he disappointed their expectations, what did the disciples do? Or what, I'm sorry, what did the crowds do? They became anger, angry, and they turned against Jesus, releasing a criminal and a murderer, Barabbas, over releasing Jesus out of spite. And when the disciples realized that Jesus wasn't the kind of savior that they thought he was because now he's dead and not alive and they're in an upper room huddled and afraid, what is their reaction? They're sad because their expectation has not been met. And we respond in different ways when our expectations aren't met. Some of us get vindictive. Some of us become angry. Some of us become sad. But it's all fear, do you see? It's all fear. And this fear leads to disbelief. You see, when Jesus didn't meet the expectations of the Pharisees and the crowds and his disciples, they all became afraid. They all responded differently, but out of fear. And they all didn't believe. The Pharisees didn't believe. <laughs> the crowd certainly didn't believe. And even his closest followers, the disciples, after his death, did not believe. Right? They didn't believe because they were looking for something that Jesus never intended to bring. Fear easily leads to this kind of dis disbelief. Because they were looking for Jesus to bring something that he didn't bring. But what Jesus does bring, while unexpected, is more wonderful than we can possibly imagine. For every single person Jesus offers, for every single peer person Jesus offers, the gift of life. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He, Jesus, is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Our, meaning those who have already believed. But do you see what the text says next? And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. What they expected was a military deliverer, which meant sides. If he's on our side, he's not on their side. And what they got was a gentle peace bringer that would offer love to everyone. And so this morning, as we kind of transition our hearts and minds here in a moment, the transitional point here is, on this Palm Sunday, is who are you expecting God to be like? And if you are expecting God to be anything like, un, if you are expecting God to be anything other than <laughs> a God who embraces love for all people, then you have misunderstood who God is. A God who embraces and loves all people. I am not telling you that all people then turn and accept and embrace God. We know they don't. But what do you think happened 
to those people in the crowds who turned on Jesus, but who we know later on did some of them turn to Jesus, embracing love, right? What happened to some of those Pharisees and Sadducees, those religious leaders who had turned against Jesus and were afraid of his power, but then later realized this person is more than I thought? What did they find? Embracing love, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. What happened to the Gentiles who, uh, <laughs> what happened to the Gentiles who turned and, and, and accepted Jesus as a God of all embracing love? They were accepted. Cornelius, truly this man, the Roman centurion, truly this man must be the son of God, right? All who turned to Jesus find him to be a God of all embracing love. And so now, and I'm really praying. I mean, I think I've been thinking about this a lot. Yesterday, Sarah and I were talking, my wife, and she was asking me just a couple questions, you know, about how we're dealing with this whole corona time. And she was asking me, like, so in this past month, you know, what were some things that you thought were really good that surprised you? What were some things that were challenges, you know? And what could you leave behind next month? And as I was thinking about all that, one of the things that I found uh, that I was surprised and I'm surprised about that I'm so excited about is I believe that this time of the coronavirus when we are apart from each other will have the impetus to cause us to think about what really matters and unify us as Christians in a unique way. I am praying like crazy that that will happen. To unify us around Jesus in a unique way. And when I say that, what do I mean? that we will not allow petty differences of insignificance stop us from offering the love and grace of Jesus to all. And a part of following the Jesus-centered life is this. Being a person that is embracing love for all people because God has offered love to all of us. And so this morning as we go to prayer, I have one prayer that I want you to pray, and I'm going to break it up into four parts, and I'm going to give you 20, 30 seconds between each part, and I'm going to guide you through it. It's a prayer that my wife wrote a couple years ago. I've used it for benedictions before, and I want to use it as we close our service here in just a moment, and as we close the sermon and we go to, a, and we go to prayer. And it goes like this. I'm going to read it in entirety, then I'm going to guide you through it. Lord, help us to value our differences, give grace in our weaknesses, grow in intimacy and unity, and be a safe place for each other. And so this morning, would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to value our differences as people? Would you help us to look at other people not as the enemy, but people who are different? Help us to value our differences. And God, would you help us to give grace to ourselves and grace to each other when we mess up that is in our weaknesses? Would you help us to give grace to each other and grace to ourselves when we mess up, that is to say, in our weaknesses? And God, despite all of our weaknesses and our differences, would you do that thing that only you can do? And would you bring unity despite our differences and weaknesses so that the world might believe that you are God? Would you pray that?
during this time when we're online, and even, and even more so, I pray, when we get back together, would you help us as a church family that just represents this small local group in the bigger scheme of a worldwide group that believe that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, coming Son of God? Would you help us in this church family to be a safe place for each other and for anyone who comes through our doors looking for the love of Jesus? Would you pray that? Amen.